Hello and welcome to the Rising Ecosystems podcast from FBI Intelligence, where we explore entrepreneurship stories in cities around the world. I'm your host, Alex Owen Hunt, and so far in this series, we have looked at the startup ecosystems of cities including Istanbul in Turkey, Mexico City, and Chennai in India. Don't forget to subscribe to the FDI podcast wherever you're listening to get access to all our previous episodes and upcoming content. But in this episode, we take a look at our first US-based and female-founded unicorn. Back in November 2021, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jennifer Biskegli, who is the CEO and founder of Interos, a private supply chain risk company based in Arlington, Virginia, which if you don't know, is a city located right next to the US capital, Washington, DC. Jennifer has 25 years of experience managing supply chain risk and really is an expert on the complexities facing globally operating companies. At Interos, Jennifer led efforts to set up a software platform that allows businesses to visualize their supply chains, identify threats, reduce risk, and most importantly, avoid disruptions. As you can imagine, Jennifer has some fascinating insights into global supply chains at a time when they're under particular strains. She also has a lot of experience to share as her founder and her thoughts on that the ecosystem in Arlington, Virginia were particularly interesting. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome to the Rising Ecosystems podcast. Happy to be here, Alex. Looking forward to the conversation. I'd like to begin by describing a little bit your story and hearing your background. I know you've got years of experience in supply chain risk and, and of course, then went on to found Interos. Can you describe a little bit about your journey and some of the major lessons that you've learned along the way? Sure. I, I When I graduated university, I, I actually answered a blind ad. And it was a blind ad for customer service in a warehouse and logistics organization of a shoe company. And just based on timing and where technology was from a global evolution, I ended up in an industry right at the nexus of the crossroads of where technology meets supply chains. And it was also right around the time when the U.S. started offshoring manufacturing, as did many other countries. And we were becoming part of this global economy where we had access to resources and innovation and different pricing methods um, in, in worlds and countries far away that we couldn't see. And so not only was that an opportunity for companies, but it's also a gap in transparency because you really don't know who you're doing business with and whether that's a good or a bad thing. And that's really what started the idea of Enteros. And so that was well over 20 years ago without dating myself. Um, I started Enteros in 2005 really to solve that transparency problem and I never lost sight of that of being the challenge. And I think, you know, really fast forward, Alex, to the last 24 months with the pandemic, we've seen multiple examples repeatedly of how important that transparency is to companies, whether it be the concentration risk we all found based on trying to spring up a brand new supply chain for vaccines globally, or a ship getting caught sideways in a canal that we all had to watch on the television. So um, lots of lessons learned. I'm sure we'll talk through it. But really, my, my uh, background is pretty singularly focused on the nexus and the crossroads of technology and supply chain. Sure. And I, I would love to dig a bit deeper into your insights when it comes to supply chain. But wh- when we look at the journey and, and sort of progression of Interos, can you talk, talk us through some of the major steps? And of course, you've recently raised $100 million in funding and become a unicorn. So congratulations on that. I, I wonder what, what sort of key milestones you reached as a company to, to get to where you are today. 
So many, and and it and it's been a 17 year journey, um, which I, some days I'm like, wow, that's it's been so long. And and having said that, it seems so quick as as I sit here today. I think a couple of things. When I started the company in 2005, you know, nobody, no companies really, as much as I just said we were offshoring manufacturing, nobody was really quote unquote worried about it. They were just excited about the opportunities, as I mentioned, access to different pricing and innovation and and skill sets and labor around the world. And so, and you also wanted to be closer to the different markets you were servicing. So there was a lot of opportunity. There was a rush to be part of this global economy. And so I actually established Interos as a consulting company. We provided services where we actually had consultants doing research. A company here in the US would offshore to a company in Mexico, and we would pretty much draw that, if you will, almost like a spider web look where you, the customer was the center, the tier one supplier in Mexico was, was the first line outside of that tier two and tier three. And, um, and just really showed customers who they were doing business with. Kind of fast forward, I think the next inflection milestone happened around 2012. So it was a few years later. And here in the US, we started seeing executive orders coming out of the White House around um, ensuring that we had resiliency and trade options because there was a real keen understanding globally of how we were starting to rely on certain parts of the world for specific products. Um, one example is all of the tech technology coming out of China and Southeast Asia and whether that was a good or a bad thing. So I think that was the next real inflection point. At that point in time, I decided to start moving towards technology, which was always the goal. It was just in 2005, like I said, nobody really understood they needed to care, and technology certainly wasn't where what you know it is today. And so 2012, 2014, we actually built our first technology out of our own cash flow, and so we bootstrapped the company for the first 14 or 15 years. Fast forward to 2018, you saw a lot more uh, attention being put on the globalization of, of um, trade and what countries we were doing business with, the uh, um, advancement of cybersecurity concerns was a real big deal. So you had this kind of evolution and education happening that it's not just the company that you know you're doing business with, but the company that they are doing business with and relying on that you needed to know more about. And I think that that's really where the market and Intero started picking up momentum. And so we actually went out for our Series A in, uh, January of 2019, we closed our Series B in February of 2020. And as you mentioned, um, we just finished up our Series C. And so we've raised a little over $130 million into the company. All three rounds were, were oversubscribed. And um, you know what's happened in the market really helped us this round, as you can imagine, with just all of the ongoings from the pandemic and everything that came through it, the ransomware attacks. Now, supply chain, is on the forefront of every business in every country and not just the resiliency and the the resilience and the concentration concerns that i brought up but esg is massive and you saw that play out in scotland last week with the discussions around the the carbon footprint and so and what countries and the leaders are signing up for so there's a real understanding alex just how hyper connected the world's become Fortunately for Enteros is that we were well-funded, we were well-positioned, we had a product in the market before all this enlightenment occurred, and we've just been able to, to you know, take a hold of that tailwind and never look back.
It's fantastic in here. And from where you sit, you really have your finger on the pulse of some of the major issues that are facing executives around the world and, and policymakers when they try to, to improve uh, domestic capacity, when, they, when they're trying to operate across borders. So maybe to bring it into the present, uh, given this amazing journey you've had and expertise you've built up over the years, I wonder if you could briefly describe what you think is are the main factors behind the current supply chain disruption and perhaps what can be done to ameliorate it? So it's a great question. And, you know, we are in a world where everything, everyone wants everything to be solved quickly. There's got to be an app or a pill for everything. <laughs> and unfortunately, a lot of what's happened with the supply chain has been years in the making and, and nothing's really going to be solved quickly. And I, I hate to be kind of the downer on the conversation. And um, the fact is, is that the realization that manufacturing of semiconductor chips only happens in one part of the world is not a surprise what is a what is an awakening for the for everyone is that so many industries are pulling on that same source of supply so whereas we used to think that the chips were only used for maybe automotive now they're being used for your phone they're being used for your kids toys they're being used for medical products and so you have multiple industries pulling on the same resources in a way that hasn't been there before. And I would actually pull that thread a little bit more and say it's really because of technology. Technology, you know, we're using technology in so many ways in our daily lives and our commercial lives in ways that we hadn't predicted. And it's just happening faster and faster. And so I think that some of the uh, pull on resources is because of the advance of technology. Some of it is simply because of how fast we had to spring up on, on new supply chains. So think about the vaccines. Most of us can't get glass. I was in a restaurant the other day and wanted, it was a distillery and wanted to buy one of their bottles of, let's just say vodka. And um, I, they're selling it in plastic bottles because they can't get glass anymore because all of the glass has gone to the vaccine supply chain. And so you have just a, a sense of um, alternative sourcing and supply that's been diminished because of such the hard pull. You also have the situation of just pure labor. And, and that's a lot of still what has to be smoothed out because of what happened in COVID. You still have countries that are not well vaccinated. You have rolling blackouts because of the, the variants that are coming through. And you just haven't seen the people and the processes come back. And I think the third piece of that is that we all went home and we all started buying off of Amazon or whatever your online retailer is. And so the whole world shifted immediately to more of a hard goods, a physical goods supply chain versus a services supply chain. So you had just this huge surge in the need to move physical goods and you didn't have an infrastructure for it. You didn't have truckers and flight you know, uh, pilots and people and then you didn't have the, the logistics mechanisms in place. And so kind of just a highly concentrated, perfect storm point in time. And it's literally just gonna take some time to, to smooth it out. So we're watching lots of money being spent on infrastructure. I think that's great. Even if you're gonna spend money on infrastructure, it's gonna take you a while to actually build things. And I honestly think that some of the smoothing of the supply chain just naturally, we have to get people back to work. We have to get more balance between hard goods and services moving through trade. I think some of that's just gonna take time. So 
If I were to look into my crystal ball, Alex, I would tell you, I think it's an 18, 24 month to get back out of here. But the exciting part, I think, is that my true belief and Interos's belief is that the companies that are gonna come out strong are the ones that learned how important transparency of their supply chain and true operational resilience is. And you see this being played out, not just on the B2B side, but literally um, in the court of public opinion. Consumers are able to decide based on how their companies that they're buying from are sourcing product, who they wanna buy from. And so if you think about how you can buy shoes and how you can buy food, Many websites on retailers, you can literally go to the website and see where the product is coming from. So I think that's the other piece of this as we smooth out the companies that invest in technology and transparency of the supply chain are those that are going to come out and be the winners in the end. It's a great point. And Raul, you've just outlined the confluence of factors that are creating all the issues and challenges for businesses operating across the globe and, and certainly mentioned a, a few things I've reported on, like the chip, the chip shortage. And, and it's very interesting to hear that you believe that it's technology and that the increased sort of digitalization that, that's perhaps led to some of these bottlenecks. And 18 to 24 months is a long time. So lot, lots, lots of disruption, I suppose, to, to be expected in the coming months. You know, um, I actually think you'll see less disruption because believe it or not, we've been going through disruption for the last 18 to 24 months. And I've heard many reports to the street, businesses just can't keep doing it because that would actually be three to four years of it. And so I think that, um, and we're already seeing as much as Interos and our customers have been able to partner and do some really amazing things over the last year, year and a half, um, as far as advancing transparency and technology, the real CapEx spend is gonna be in 2022. And it's gonna be everything from this concept of transparency and operational resilience, as well as ESG, all around environmental and sustainability goals. I think you're gonna see a lot more spend coming up in the next 12 to 24 months to actually get rid of some of the disruptions, Alex, and really create some smoothing because businesses just can't keep operating with the shocks to the system. That's really interesting, Jennifer. And I suppose one topic that we've been covering at FDI Intelligence is about the regionalization of supply chains and shortening of the global value chains sort of harkens back to what we were discussing earlier in our conversation about over-reliance on certain markets, namely China and Southeast Asia when it comes to technology. What, what are your thoughts on regionalization of supply chains? Is, is that where a lot of this CapEx is going to go towards in 2022? You know, so interestingly enough, um, the the shocks to the system and some of the the breakage of the supply chains that we've been feeling um, were on purpose again. And, and when I say that, it's because if you think back to the 90s, we were all about just in time. We were all about lean supply chains. We do used to do a lot around vendor managed inventory where you only house enough inventory for what you could actually sell on the shelves. And so everything was built very just in time, very um, very close to the chest and very fragile. And so when you talk about you know, bringing supply chains closer in, I look at this as really the opportunity to build agility into the supply chain. And so I think when I look at expenditures, I'm really first and foremost thinking about technology. Mm. Gone are the days of being able to onboard a new supplier fill out some paperwork and put it in a file cabinet drawer and not look at it until you send them a survey next year. Doesn't work. We have to have constant interchange with our supply chain, constant transparency and constant monitoring. And so I think 
The first expenditure is going to be around technology to provide that transparency and continuous monitoring. And obviously, that's what we do here at Interos. The second thing is, I do think there's going to be a bigger push on alternative sourcing. And, and by that, I want to make sure that I'm thinking ahead for options, because if there's a weather pattern, if one of my most important suppliers or sub-tier suppliers gets bought out by the competition or gets bought by a country that I might not want to be affiliated with, there are lots of situations out there that you may need to make a change. No company wants to be caught flat-footed as they were this last couple of years. And, and I think the last piece and the reason for that is that you know for all the years that I've been doing this, Alex, this is the first time ever that the supply chain and the whether it's the fragility or the the needed agility and transparency of the supply chain has been squarely on the CEO and the board's desk. Boards are talking to the C-suite about the supply chain twice a month right now. Never happened before. So when you go back to the question of of spending, um, you know it's a top-down cultural shift, which means money's going to flow because we understand this is a brand and reputation consideration as much as anything. Well, that's very interesting to hear. And, and certainly we'll be keeping our eyes uh, fixed on what might be happening in terms of CapEx moving forward to, to ameliorate some of these supply chain issues. But back to your point about technology, this podcast is about tech startups and, and you're a, a prominent example of one that's grown at rapid rate and raised successful funding. But where you're sat now is Arlington in, in the US. And uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about what your experiences have been as an entrepreneur there and growing uh, since you found the company in 2005. Maybe you can just outline for us some of the sort of the major changes in, in the startup ecosystem in Arlington uh, over recent years. Well, it's actually, it's a very interesting place to be a, uh, a tech entrepreneur because you know the, the US federal government, the world's largest customer is literally 15 minutes away from me and all around me in, in several buildings. And um, you know they, they're a heavy services buyer. And so remember, Intero started as a services company. And so uh, we've been supporting the government uh, all 17 plus years that we've been in business. They came with us when we moved to technology. So we've been at NASA for eight years now, uh, working with both safe, uh, space emission assurance as well as the CIO and CISO from a, a cyber and federal IT network resilience uh, standpoint. We've worked with the Department of Defense this whole time great customer, great partner, and they're moving um, where they can into more of that digital aspect of the supply chain. So that's been a great journey and a great learning opportunity. I think that um, when we moved into the private sector back into 2018, we started bringing on banks and aerospace defense uh, companies in the private sector. That's when it got started getting a little bit lonelier. Um, obviously, this is a very big uh, aerospace defense market here in the uh, in the Arlington, Washington, D.C. area. So a lot of customers, but you know, really spreading our wings. And so uh, they're very much focused on moving into different industries as we grow the company, and then overseas as well. It's but um, I think when we move to technology, back to your ecosystem question, it just became very, very different and probably a little bit lonelier for me because it is such a services heavy area for the economy. That's that's interesting to hear to, to sound say that you're lonely when you have such a, a broad base of customers and, and in and a highly populated area in that sense. I, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into what it's been like for you as an entrepreneur in Arlington, clearly an expert in, in the all areas supply chain and well located for some of those public sector clients you've, you've mentioned. 
But I mean, can you describe a little bit your experiences as a as a female founder uh, in in Arlington, and maybe maybe you faced some unique challenges. So, you know, I don't necessarily get up every morning thinking about how I'm a female because I just am. But, uh, you know, the unique challenge, I would think, is is what I mentioned a minute ago, which is more it's unique to be more on the tech side than on the services side. Right. You know, just to be transparent, when you're running a services company, you know, you're looking at profit margins that are drastically different than when you're running a SaaS technology company. And so how you build that company, the type of talent that you look for and the metrics that you measure yourself against is, is very different. I mean, we were a services company, <clears throat> excuse me, it was you know cash in, cash out, hourly billable rate. That was kind of what I cared about. Now there's a lot more expenditures in-house on the technology, the infrastructure, security, a lot of things that are not so much cash in and cash out, which me- means that when I go out and I you know network or what have you, it's a very different conversation. Um, so I've needed to find, you know, our funding came out of Silicon Valley, even though we're located here in D.C. And so really expanding my network, my personal network and the folks that that, you know, could learn from me and I could learn from has needed to expand a little bit. Sure. And I suppose that's follows on to another question I had about the the funding availability. U.S. is the largest venture capital market in the world. I, uh, but of course, there is uh, a uh, inequities between different ecosystems from from what I guess you've just said, you had to seek funding from Silicon Valley investors. Is, is, is there an ample supply of funding for entrepreneurs in Arlington? So it's growing. It's growing like crazy. And um, the reason, again, is because the government's here. And so you have a lot of entrepreneurs that have taken lessons learned as the government moves. I mean, the government's, the U.S. government's the world's largest buyer, right? There's a lot to learn and there's a lot to partner. And as new technologies and, and technologies are taken more and more um, advantage of, it creates their own ecosystem. And so um, whereas a lot of the investment was going more into classified capabilities, and when I say classified, um, you know, for classified agencies, um, you're seeing more of, you know, SaaS platforms and more knowledge sharing kind of technology platforms being invested in. So I would tell you that things are are changing here. You are seeing more of a bubble, but I think for the U.S., you know, you're still going to see more definitely out of Silicon Valley. They've been doing it forever. You see a lot coming out of Atlanta and out of Boston, um, but D.C. is picking up and becoming a bit more commercial in their way, which I think will create even more of an ecosystem opportunity. Now, when we look at talent, I mean, you're a tech company and need some smart engineers to be developing your platform or, uh, you know, managing it and, and, and continue to develop it, developing it. There was a big announcement in uh, in the local area from Amazon, who plans to uh, open their second headquarters in Arlington. I wonder, from a talent perspective, how an announcement like that from such a large company may affect your ability to to attract talent. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it's uh. You know, I will also offer to you um, that, you know, the folks that want to work for Amazon are probably not the same folks that want to work for a unicorn, fast moving, winner takes all approach to the technology market like Interos. Right. And so so there's a symbiotic way for us to exist in the same ecosystem. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll trade talent. But, you know, the folks that want to work for Interos are those that really see the opportunity to you know, change how the world does business. And, and that's literally what we're doing here at Enteros. And so 
the folks that want to come in and do something that's galvanizing that's never been done before you have to remember alex our platform is the first to market and this is across the globe first to market and so those are the talent and the people that we attract we were fortunate enough we have multiple i mean wicked wicked smart people half the company um is is on the tech side so we've grown from 53 to almost 250 people in a year and a half and half of that is tech and you know we have people that wrote the book on graph analytics we have we have people that wrote the book on how to visualize large amounts of data and they've all had big company experience but they're here because they really want to make a difference in a winner takes all market and so it's a bit of a personality um, that we attract as much as the talent Sure. And, and presumably that also comes with the remuneration packages you're offering them, because if they're joining a fast growing private company, that perhaps there's equity opportunities for them also. Because just just to think back to the series, this rising ecosystem series, one of the problems faced by entrepreneurs and founders elsewhere is that regulations aren't aligned to them offering generous remuneration packages to, to potentially uh, smart and ambitious tech entrepreneurs. I presume that's part of your package at Interos. It is. We we love folks that want to benefit based on the success of the company. And so we have a we have salary, we have bonus structure, and we have an equity package. And we you know we started that with our Series A, and um, you know the folks that have been with us since the Series A are very very happy people right now based on the increase in share price. And um, and it's also it's a retention um, opportunity as well, right, Alex? I mean the the ones that hang out and continue as we continue to grow in value are the ones that are going to benefit. I love for all of my team members to benefit with me. I think that makes it more fun in the end. Absolutely. So there's clearly a lot of opportunities and, and benefits to being based in Arlington, but like any ecosystem, there, there may be some room for improvement. What would you like to see changed in Arlington to, to improve the tech ecosystem even further? Well, I think a couple of things. I think one, um, as you mentioned, I'd like to see more money flow into commercial capabilities. I think it's it's happening, it's changing. I think that you know all three rounds when we started talking to investors, some investors understood the benefit of having the federal government as a customer. A lot of investors don't. And I think that for us, we were able to take on the world's largest customer out of the gate, satisfy them, have them stick with us year after year, and learn and build a technology that we knew could satisfy that and could take it anywhere in the world. And so I think there's a, I think what would improve it is to see more of a realization of the strength of cutting your eye teeth on that market, because there's a lot of us here. I think seeing more money flow into more commercial capabilities, not just those that look like the government. You know, when I built the platform that that you can, that if you could see us, uh, is behind me. Um, you know, it's it's commercial, it's built for the private sector even though the government is one of the customers. And so understanding more of the investments that's needed to create large scale commercial capabilities. I'd also selfishly like to see more females in tech around here. And again, I look at that as a want as much as a responsibility. Absolutely. And that that leads on perfectly to my other question. I know you used to be the chairman of the board of uh, Women Impacting Public Policy, which is a nonpartisan organization educating and advocating on behalf of women owned businesses. What would you like to see or what do you think is required to improve women entrepreneurship in, in the U.S. and specific, specifically Arlington? Um, so interestingly, they are, WIP is celebrating its 20th year anniversary. And I was on a, uh, a webinar with uh, 
the, the immediate and the current chair of the organization. And, you know, when I was overseas last week with my team, I was understanding they have this concept of simplified acquisition with the with the UK uh, MOD, and meaning that you can get uncompeted access to the contracts for up to two million pounds. Here in the states, it's two hundred fifty thousand US dollars. And so, to answer your question, you know, we as women entrepreneurs have the know-how. We need access to contracts, and that's not just here; that's globally. Um, so don't just give us money give uh, and grants, actually give us access to contracts. And I would love to see the understanding of not just, uh, there's a definition around women owned, which means 51% owned and managed and controlled versus women led, which is what Interos is now because we took on investors. I'm actually blocked out from the ability to access some of those contracts because I've taken on more funding. So I don't own and manage 51% of my company anymore which is a limiting factor on the meteoric growth that I prefer to experience for myself, my customers, and my employees. And so I think that if I were to specifically answer that question, I'd want more access to contracts and to do it based on having growth companies, not just this 51% um, owned and managed, which actually keeps us small um, and thinking smaller. That's a very interesting point. So if, if we talk about how to improve the access to contracts, this is presumably in, in government procurement processes you're referring to. It's actually in the private sector as well. They're, they're, um, if you look at most large organizations, they have supplier diversity programs. Most of them look to bring in women owned and led, which is 51% plus ownership. So this is both public and private sector, not just a regional thing. It's a global thing. Right, right. And and what can be done is it's in the bidding process. Is there, are, are a, there, sorry, policy, go ahead. Yeah, it's a policy and legislative change. So as part of the contract, it should be opened up to women led, not just women owned. And I think that that would be a huge dynamic change by giving more women access to more contracts to build companies and to make money. It's been fantastic to hear a little bit more about your insights on all things supply chains, uh, Interos's journey and Arlington startup ecosystem. I wanted to round things off if you had any closing words of wisdom from your experiences as an entrepreneur. I think the one thing, two things, Alex. One is you have to have this maniacal focus. You know, what got me here is I've always understood the problem I was trying to solve, which was transparency in the supply chain. I remember in the first five years of Interos, having drinks with someone and and them saying, really, you're going to bank your whole career on this thing called supply chain risk? And I said, yes, and, and look where we are today. This is the only problem Interos has ever looked to solve. We've done it a couple ways, services as well as tech, but it's why we are winning the market right now. I think the second thing is ask for help and actually receive it. People love to help. And it took me a couple years to figure that out. Um, and especially as a female, where we often think that we have to know all the answers and compete against everybody, really people want to help. And as long as you actually listen, you don't always have to do it, but as long as you listen and accept it and, and learn from it, you're going to be a rock star. And I truly believe we will have a lot more female unicorns behind me. And I want to be part of that success movement. Absolutely. And uh, I look forward to seeing many more emerge in the coming coming months and, and years. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on this on the Rising Ecosystems podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Well, what a great conversation that was with Jennifer. I really enjoyed hearing her expert insights on some of the causes of current supply chain disruptions we're seeing across the globe. 
Also going into some of the specifics of certain supply chains, such as semiconductors and, and vaccines that we've seen put under particular strain over the last 18 to 24 months. And clearly looking forward, uh, her outlook is somewhat sanguine. We've got 18 to 24 months of disruption to come, but albeit a little bit less severe than what we've seen uh, in, in the previous two years. Anyway, that brings us to the end of another episode of Rising Ecosystems. If you've enjoyed this, please leave a rating and review. We'd love to hear from you. Also, you might want to subscribe to get access to all of the Rising Ecosystem podcast episodes and more of our content. For the next month, we'll be switching over to our other podcast series, The Bill Bow Effect, which explores whether culture can boost economic development. And we'll be coming back in February with far more Rising Ecosystems. That's it from me. I've been Alex Owen Hunt. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.